I Never Compete With My Brother, written and performed by Don Futterman, directed by Linda Lovich and Gizem Ozdemir, with engineering and sound design by Gizem Ozdemir. With special thanks to Natan Gesundheit for sampling his album Malava Malka. I Never Compete With My Brother was recorded at the TLV1 Studios in Tel Aviv. My older brother Matt and I were not allowed to compete. Now, this rule was genealogical. It it evolved more from family history, from the relationships in our parents' generation than from our own. But it was ironclad. We were raised on the 15th floor of Carlisle Towers in Flushing, Queens, New York, and we spent most of our time looking for things to throw out the window. We were into fire and water. Once, when I was perfecting my aim dropping water balloons, I hit a baby carriage, and the woman thought her baby had exploded. My brother would wrap whole packs of firecrackers in toilet paper, and we would throw these fireballs out the window, and we would lean out to watch the terrified residents on floors below. One day, my brother came home with an M80. Now, an M80 is an enormous firecracker. It's a quarter of a stick of dynamite. And after giving me a long lecture about the dangers of the M80, he took me into our parents' bedroom because they had a better view. He lit the M80 and he tossed it out the window. Except it hit the windowsill and bounced back in. So there was this M80 with the fuse burning up at our feet. I grabbed the metal garbage pail from next to my parents' desk and I put it upside down on top of the M80. And then my brother sat down on it. We're all right, he kept saying. We're all right. When we picked up the garbage pail, there was a 12-inch oval burnt into the carpeting of our parents' bedroom. We had to do something. We rearranged all their bedroom furniture in a ridiculous formation that put that burnt hole directly under the middle of their bed. And then we hung up signs all over the house which said, Surprise! Surprise! And our parents were so devoted to us, they never moved the furniture back the way it was supposed to be. Of course, there was a problem with my parents' restriction on competing, because while we shared a room and shared our parents, we were, in fact, brothers, and we were very different from each other. My brother is only two and a half years older than me, but when we were kids, he was twice my size. He was enormous, and I was always the smallest kid in my class, except for Ethan Russo, who was the size of a rabbit. My brother got bored with beating me up, so he turned to psychological warfare. He told me that he had been blacking out on his way to school, but I shouldn't tell Mom and Dad because that would scare them, and the blackouts would probably go away on their own. He was only worried that it might turn into a terminal coma. So he wanted me to recognize the symptoms. The heavy breathing, the eyes rolled up in the head, the frothing at the mouth, the twitching, the spasms, convulsions, all of it. So if necessary, I could call an ambulance in time. Now, he kept up daily reports on these blackouts for three weeks until I could recite the ever more elaborate symptoms without a mistake. He waited till one night when our parents went to the opera. We watched them pull out of the parking lot from our window, and as soon as they were gone, my brother went terminal. He was breathing really hard, and spit was coming out of his mouth. 
His eyes rolled back in his head, and his body started jerking. I threw water on him, but he was shaking violently. I grabbed him and held on. I didn't know if we were up to twitching or spasms or what. I called 911, but I was so hysterical, I couldn't remember the name of our street. Suddenly, my brother opened his eyes and called out in a tiny, faint voice. I put my ear right up to his mouth. I was hopeful now, since waking up was not part of the scenario he described to me. And he said, Get me a black cherry soda with ice. I raced to the kitchen, and by the time I got back, he was sitting on the couch watching television. He told me I'd imagine the entire thing. We got into a fight, a broom fight. I whacked him in the shoulder, and he dropped his broom and screamed, My eyes! I'm blind. And to prove it, he walked right into the wall. It never stopped. But the worst was at night. My brother and I shared double-decker beds. I slept on the bottom because I was afraid of heights and couldn't make it to the top of the ladder. Every night, I would wait up for him. At last, he would come into our room and climb up to his bed, and then he would drop his arm down next to the wall and make it vibrate. And then he would say, This is your conscience. No, it's not. It's you, Matt. I am using your brother's voice, so you will hear me clearly. Tomorrow you must leave a dollar under the bed for your brother and tell your mother that you ate the entire box of yodels. To tell you the truth, somewhere deep inside, I knew that was my brother and not my conscience, but I wasn't completely sure. And this, my first existential crisis, lasted for five years, and I did everything he told me to. One night, I came into our room to go to sleep, and my brother was already tucked in before me, and that's when I saw my chance. I rustled the blanket so it would sound like I was getting into bed, and then slowly, I began to climb the ladder. My brother's arm dropped down next to the wall, and it started to vibrate. I had to go higher, higher than I'd ever been before. I was one step from the top, but all I could see was the side of the mattress. This is your conscience. It was now or never. So I climbed to the top step, and from there I could see my brother lying on his back with his eyes wide open. And before he could tell me to do another thing, I leaned over and punched him in the stomach as hard as I could. And I knew that was the last I'd ever hear from my conscience. My brother also led me to my first religious crisis. Every Saturday morning, my brother and I trooped off to junior congregation. That's the separate service they have for the kids so they won't disturb the adults who are trying to pray and talk to each other. In our shul, Temple Gates of Prayer, once a year in the springtime, the kids from junior congregation would lead the adult service in the main sanctuary. So one Saturday morning, my parents dressed me in my suit and took me off to watch my brother do his part in the service. He was going to take out the Torah. It was amazing. There was my brother standing on a stage with a silk talit, like an aviator's scarf around his neck, and all he did was sing a few words. And 250 adults stood up. 
then, when he was holding the Torah in his arms, they told me if he dropped it, he wouldn't be allowed to eat anything for 40 days. This was exciting. I gave up Saturday morning cartoons, and I became the mascot of junior congregation. And by the following year, they had taught me the shortest prayer in the service, the ashray, so that I could help lead the adults in the main sanctuary. But there was one strange thing. The, the whole time I was up there, I heard laughter and giggles throughout the room. And it wasn't until years later that my parents told me that I was so small that when I was standing behind the lectern, no one in the congregation could see me. At this point, my brother went off to Camp Ramah. Now, there were a few different kinds of Jewish summer camps in America. There were those Jewish summer camps which were social camps for Jewish kids, so that when they started fooling around, they'd be fooling around with other Jewish kids. And there were those Jewish summer camps where they teach Jewish kids things that Jews don't do. They took you hunting and fishing and kayaking, and all the groups had the names of Indian tribes. And then there were those educational, cultural, religious Jewish camps where you were supposed to learn some rituals and come back loving Israel and thinking, Jewish is beautiful. And Camp Ramah was one of these. Ramah had its own quirk. They thought if you took Jewish kids from the city and the suburbs up to the mountains for the summer and spoke to them exclusively in Hebrew, they would come back fluent Hebrew speakers. And if all Jewish children in America spoke Hebrew, the Jewish people would be stronger. My brother came back from his summer in Camp Ramah as if he had been in paradise. For the rest of the year, he sang the only two words from the camp song that he could remember. The next summer, when I was nine, my parents told me I was now old enough to go with my brother to Camp Ramah. So they packed us off to the Berkshires, and it was only once we got there that anybody told me that he and I weren't going to be together all summer. His bunk and his division was on one side of camp, and mine was on the other. The first night I met my counselor, my madrich, He was an Israeli, a black belt karate expert. And the summer before, he had had the 18-year-olds, and he didn't realize there was any difference between the two groups. He called us all together and he said, Eh, men, from now, from end of summer, we will to speak only Hebrew. This way, you will to learn Hebrew. Okay? Okay. I wasn't too excited about this. I only knew four words of Hebrew. Shalom, Ima, Abba, and Shalom. Before we went to sleep, he came over to my bed and he said to me, So I tried my Hebrew on him. Shalom. Ima? Okay, okay. This one time I will to speak English, but from now, from end of camp, only Hebrew. Do you want to make a number one? Or a number two. I had never heard that in English either. It was a very strange scene. All these little kids were running around, whispering to each other in English. But whenever a staff person walked by, we'd pretend we had been speaking in Hebrew all along, with a few words that we knew. Shalom, shalom. Ima, Abba, shalom, shalom. My counselor had a rule that you couldn't get food passed to you at the table unless you asked for it in Hebrew. So for the first two weeks of camp, I didn't eat anything. And then before Visitor's Day, he warned us we were not allowed to complain to our parents. And if they asked us how we liked Camper Ma, we had to say, 
It's great. So all day, my brother babbled on about his friends and his classes and his services and his counselors, and I just kept crying. And every time my parents said, don't you like Camp Rama? I'd say, it's great. When my parents left at the end of the day, they had to keep stopping the car because I was holding on to the rear fender. It took me three years to understand why my brother liked Camp Rama. At the end of the summer when I was 12 years old, my brother helped me get my first girlfriend. I had been in love with her from the moment I got to camp. She was perfect. She had long, dark brown hair and big brown puppy dog eyes, and she was exactly my height. She smoked cigarettes. There was something essentially corrupt about her which scared me, but also attracted me. In any case, she was out of reach because she was going out with Kevin Gold, the star of our division. Two weeks before the end of the summer, they broke up. And then, at a big Israeli couples dance, my brother picked her as his partner, told her that I liked her, and switched off with me. And she and I were together from that moment on. The next morning, she gave me a hot pink yarmulke with a pom-pom, which she had knitted herself. It was the first present I ever got from a girl, and I didn't figure out for a long time that she must have made this pink flamingo special for Kevin Gold and not for me, but I wore it proudly for the rest of the summer. The most direct consequence of my going to Camp Ramah in the real world was that I became the star of Hebrew school. Being the star of Hebrew school felt like a dubious achievement. It was kind of like being Miss Subways. I had my first major religious crisis on my last day of Hebrew school. In our Hebrew school at Temple Gates of Prayer, at the end of every year, they would have a special awards assembly. You would get a certificate for each of the courses you got an A in. If you got an A in Hebrew, or an A in Jewish living, or an A in junior congregation attendance, you would get a certificate for each of those courses. And if you got certificates for all three courses, you would get an extra certificate of overall excellence. And if you got an overall excellence certificate all five years you were in Hebrew school, when you graduated, you would get an extra certificate of absolute perfection. I had four overall excellence certificates. My last day of Hebrew school, my teacher, Rabbi Marcus, called me up to his desk. Now, Rabbi Marcus was young. He was hip. We liked him. So I had to listen to what he said. So, Daniel, what are we going to give you for grades? Oh, you're going to get your A in Hebrew. And you're going to get your A in junior congregation attendance but I don't know what to give you for Jewish living. Tell me, Daniel, do you keep kosher? If you keep kosher, you get an A. And if you don't keep kosher, then you get a B. This was a ridiculous question. No one in my class kept kosher. No one even knew how. I was torn. I never lied, and especially not to a teacher. But the only thing I could think of was my certificate of absolute perfection floating right out the window. Somewhere on some level, 
I knew that this was a strange way of being graded, and I didn't answer Rabbi Marcus for a long time. Finally, though, I pulled myself up, I looked him in the eye, and I said, Of course I keep kosher. Good, and you get an A! And I got my certificate. But what I didn't realize was that I had mortgaged away my guilt for the next 15 years. That every time I was in a Chinese restaurant, I would tremble throughout the entire meal, sure that Rabbi Marcus was going to walk in the door any second, innocently needing to use the payphone or the bathroom, and he would see me putting a wonton in my mouth, and on the spot, he would make me give back all of my certificates. My brother, inspired by his latest summer in Camp Ramah, did start keeping kosher. Then he started to keep Shabbat, the Sabbath. So from Friday afternoon until Saturday night, there were all these rules my brother followed. He wouldn't touch electrical appliances. He put timers on all the lights so they'd go on and off by themselves. He wouldn't write so he wouldn't do his homework. He wouldn't use money so he wouldn't go shopping. He basically wouldn't do anything he didn't want to do. To make things more complicated, he was going through phases. So one week, he was Holy Rabbi Matthew the Pious. But the next week, he had given it all up and was back to my brother Matt. Then Holy Rabbi Matthew, then my brother Matt. Holy Rabbi Matthew, Brother Matt. And I couldn't keep track of which phase he was in because inside, I knew he was crazy. Then my brother joined Beitar. Beitar is a militant Zionist youth movement, something like the Jewish Defense League. They taught him he had to set a personal example for young Jews the world over, to fight for both banks of the Jordan River, and to reforge himself in blood and iron. They made him swear he was willing to die for the movement, and if he wasn't willing to give his life for Beitar, he should quit right then and there and join some wishy-washy organization, like uh, Young Judea. They gave my brother nunchucks, Nunchucks are two sticks of wood, a foot long each, about the width of a broomstick, but the sticks are heavy. They're connected by a short rope or chain. If you hold one end of one of the sticks and swing it around in a figure eight, the other stick swings so wildly that if anyone tries to come near you, it will break their arm. My brother made me stand three feet in front of him so he could perfect his control. He wanted to see how close he could come without actually hitting me. And this is how my brother was going to defend the Jewish people. Then he hung up posters of all the Beitar heroes in our bedroom. I would wake up and see Menachem Begin's face staring at me through prison bars from a wanted poster from the British Mandate in Palestine in 1947. And Begin's eyes would get me because I knew what Begin was thinking. We're proud of your brother. But what have you done for the Jewish people? I joined Young Judea. My first day, they made me vice president of all of Queen's region. Now, it's true, we only had 17 members, but there were 2 million Jews in New York, and I knew that I had to set a personal example for each of them. By now, I understood that being Jewish was the most important thing in my life. But what I couldn't figure out was, what were the day-to-day implications? I started studying Jews. The problem was that most of the Jewish kids at the Bronx High School of Science seemed pretty much like the Chinese kids at the Bronx High School of Science. Finally, I came to the same conclusion as my brother. I would have to take on the religious practices, the mitzvot, but no pendulum swings for me. 
I was going to take it one step at a time and question it all along the way. I started slowly. I gave up wonton soup, then spare ribs, then Chinese restaurants. I was practically keeping kosher when I had my second major religious crisis. It seemed to me that if I carried the logic of Jewish law to its extreme, I wasn't supposed to have anything to do with girls or sex before marriage. Now, at 16, girls and the Jewish people, those were all I thought about. So this tortured me for weeks. I felt ridiculous, and I didn't know where to turn. Finally, I went to my brother and regaled him with my suffering and the unfathomable depths of my dilemma. My brother looked at me for a long time with a deep, sympathetic, understanding gaze, and then he said to me these words, which I've never forgotten. That's the one part we don't follow. And now everything was okay. And when I graduated high school, I put my kippah on my head, and I wore it all the time. And whoever saw me would know that I was a Jew and proud of it. And I would always remember that there was a God above me. I went to Israel to learn to be a Jew. My first day, I went to the wall, the Kotel. I'd heard all the stories about the Kotel, how it was the only wall still standing from the ancient biblical temples, how this wall had been built by the poor Jews, and that's why it was still standing and how Israeli paratroopers had recaptured it in 67, in the Six-Day War. I also heard how Jews would come there and write notes to God and stick them in the cracks of the wall. They told me about one man who came after the Holocaust and wrote a note which said, Dear God, I am searching for my son. If he survived the war, somehow get this note to him. Here is my address in Israel. And when he put the note in the wall, another note fell out. He picked it up and read it. It said, Dear God, I'm looking for my father. If he's still alive, get this message to him so we can find each other. This is where I live in the new land of Israel. And that note was from the man's son. They also told me that Art Linkletter had taken all the notes out of the wall to publish in a book called Jews Say the Darndest Things. My first day at the Kotel, I met a man named Pinchas a tall fellow who wore a long black Hasidic coat. And even though I had my kippah on my head, Pinchas said to me, Ya Jewish? It's always been my dream to go up to Hasidim at the wall and say to them, Ya Jewish? Pinchas set me up with a rabbi for Simchat Torah, the celebration of finishing the Torah and starting to read it again. This rabbi took me to services at a shul, which was unlike any place I had ever been. The men were rocking back and forth as they prayed. Their feet weren't moving, just their torsos. Sort of like crazy people you see waiting to cross the street at a red light. I said to the rabbi, what are they doing? That's shuckling. If you want to throw your whole self into your prayer, you've got to throw your body in too. Go ahead, try it. I took a few dips. It felt awkward, well at first, but after a while I started to get the hang of it. And now I scanned the room. Oh, my God. These were the healthiest-looking Jews I had ever seen in my life. It was as if they had all just stepped out of a Bible movie. Where are we? This is a Hezder Yeshiva. 
These boys spend half their time here in the yeshiva studying Torah and the other half in the elite corps of the Israeli army. They are all pilots and paratroopers, but look how they throw themselves into their davening. Pilots and paratroopers. I pulled myself up tall, sucked in a deep, cocky breath. This was the place for me. You think you're excited now? Imagine what you'll feel once Torah really is the center of your being. You've got to study in yeshiva. Yeshiva? The time you've spent on Torah, it is a drop in the ocean in comparison to the time you've spent on other things, eh? let's say, uh, on geometry. Not that geometry is unimportant, but in yeshiva, you will get yourself a rebbe, and you will become a Torah true Jew. Then just try to imagine what you will feel on Simchat Torah once Torah really is the center of your being. He had planted the idea in my soul. After services, there was dancing. It was a simple dance. You put one hand on the shoulder of the guy in front of you, waved the other in the air, and sang songs without words to God at the top of your lungs. We snaked around the room for hours doing this little stutter step. I called it the Hasidic Shuffle. By midnight, there were only a few of us young guys left, and now we locked our arms around each other's shoulders and we began to circle. Our dance became faster and harder, our feet pounding the floor, our circle getting tighter and tighter until we were an unbreakable chain, slick with sweat, hurling our bodies almost into flight. And I knew that my dancing would last well past any point of exhaustion or adrenaline because my dancing was being fueled by my potential to become a Torah-true Jew. And that potential was bottomless. And the only thing that distracted me from the power of this dance, the one thing that cut into my joy, was the thought of how much more I would feel someday when I really was a Torah-true Jew, after I'd found a Rebbe and studied in a yeshiva, once Torah really was the center of my life. And what I didn't know was that that was as close as I was going to get.